This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Get the service you deserve. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is Fresh Air. I'm Tanya Mosley. Award-winning playwright Jeremy O'Harris has always felt a kinship to Lorraine Hansberry. She was the first black woman to have a play, A Raisin in the Sun, performed on Broadway. And she's often described as one of the most significant playwrights of the 20th century. Well, this spring, Harris stepped in as a producer to give one of Hansberry's lesser-known works a revival on Broadway. The sign in Sidney Brewstein's window was written by Hansberry shortly before she died of pancreatic cancer at the age of 34. This latest revival stars Oscar Isaac and Rachel Brosnahan. It premiered at the Brooklyn Academy of Music before Harris helped bring the show this spring to Broadway. The play raises questions about art, political corruption, homosexuality, and interracial love. Like Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun, Jeremy O'Harris's debut on Broadway was also a smash hit. His work Slave Play, which ran on Broadway in 2019, garnered 12 Tony Award nominations. Harris's other works include Daddy, a play about a young black artist who gets into a relationship with an older wealthy collector. Harris also co-wrote the 2021 film Zola with director Janixa Bravo and served as a co-producer for season two of the HBO show Euphoria. He guest stars as a fashion designer on season two of the Netflix series Emily in Paris. Harris is a recipient of the Lorraine Hansberry Playwriting Award and the Paula Vogel Playwriting Award. Jeremy O'Harris, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. Jeremy, I read that it was actually a text exchange between you and actress Rachel Brosnahan that motivated you <laughs> to step in to get um, this play onto Broadway after it ended its run in Brooklyn, where it actually done pretty well. Why was it important for you to get it shown on Broadway? Well, I mean, one, selfishly, I wanted to see it. Um, I had seen a production of it in Chicago when Ann Coffin, the phenomenal director, did it there. And I had just imagined that because such, you know, huge, huge stars were in this play that for me is so huge, it would have immediately gone to Broadway right afterwards. So because I was doing a writer's residency in Italy with a group of young playwrights, um, because of that, I wasn't able to see the show um, before it closed. And when I found out it wasn't going to Broadway, I immediately like sort of jumped in the action because I felt like the world needed to see this play. And also I needed to see it because I wanted to see it with Rachel and Oscar. And, you know, this moment that we're in, yes, this Lorraine Hansberry um, play is on Broadway. And at the same time, her work is being banned in places like Oklahoma, and the banning of other creative works by Black artists are being banned. How do you see this moment as it relates to those urgent themes that you think about um, that this Brewstein play actually brings forth? So I'm from Virginia. I'm from Martinsville, Virginia, a really small town in Virginia that you probably never heard of unless you follow, you know, mid-century modern furniture that stopped being made in America in 1992. You know, I was in a factory town that dried up. And one of my only saving graces in that town was I had a great teacher named Candace Owen Williams who had a huge, huge collection of great, great plays and great, great novels. She taught me English and she taught me drama and she taught me dance. And she gave me a pathway out of of dire circumstances. She gave me a language for the politics that I would grow to have. Um, 
And in this moment when I'm seeing our country in this dire need of, you know, reading comprehension and uh, politics that do not waver, I am seeing the right do the thing they need to do to make sure that we all become opioid addicts who never leave our small towns. They are taking away our books. They're taking away our ability to dream. And so when I see that I have a chance to, you know, work with amazing people to potentially get 1,500 people more a week to go home and tell everyone they know about a little play called The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window— that that might maybe spark for one of those people that those fifteen hundred meet, um, the 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 gumption to go and buy it at their local bookstore or get it from their library and read it and spread the politic this woman so like you know vibrantly held on to as she was dying in this in nineteen sixty four. I know that we're doing our job. We're doing it right, you know, because like that. That, that 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 can shift something in some small town, some small place. Like that's why that's why I do theater is to shift the politics of the communities that come in contact with the plays that I'm putting on. When did you first discover Lorraine Hansberry? I discovered Lorraine Hansberry when I was in high school. I think when a lot of other people did. Um I wanted to be a lawyer before I wanted to be a playwright or even an actor. Um, I would, the, the trajectory of what Jeremy's jobs were going to be were uh, preacher, lawyer, preacher, lawyer, actor. And you read A Raisin in the Sun, I'm guessing. I read A Raisin in the Sun. I read Young, Gifted, and Black. But these were all things I met when I was in ninth grade in um, AP English. You went um, to a primarily white high school, though. I did, yeah. but I had great, great teachers. There was a Dr. Stevens was our white teacher who went to Howard, which was insane. Um, and he taught history of the Americas. And his entire history of the Americas was essentially the 1619 Project. Like, mm-hmm. And it was not met well by a lot of the students at the school, one of whom had still, like one of the kids in my school still lived in like a house that was like on a plantation. Mm-hmm. Hansberry suffered from pancreatic cancer, and she was just 34 years old when she died. Do you ever think about how she might have perfected the sign in Sidney Brewstein's window had her life not been cut short? You know what's so funny? I had a conversation earlier today. I did a, um, a sort of a documentary thing for not my documentary, someone else's documentary, about Christopher Marlowe. And they asked me, do you think that if Christopher Marlowe hadn't died at 29, he would have written... Any like so? Uh, do you ever imagine how many better works he would have written? And I said, I actually think it's really, um, I think it's really uh, disrespectful in a way to the memory of these artists mm. to um, fetishize or imagine that the work they've done already is not enough, right? That like that there's something more that they could have or should have done with their time on Earth. Um, because, like, the fact that we're still thinking about this play and her other works, right, so much longer past her, like, so long after her death, when so many of her contemporaries, so many of her peers have not lived anywhere near as long as she has mm. through the sign of City Brucine's window or um, Le Blanc or um, To Be Young, Gifted in Black or Raisin in the Sun, that I don't know that I need to imagine that what would have happened if she had written this any better or any differently if she had been alive, because I don't know that she would have. I know that she left us this. 
And this has given us so much to parse through, so much to think about. We're still talking about it, you know. There's something quite beautiful about that to me, something so complete mm-hmm. about that. And I and I love that, like, she left us something in her dying days that is something that's a great puzzle that we want to keep putting together and piecing apart and, like, rejiggering over and over and over again. Jeremy, when the highly acclaimed work Slave Play of yours came out in 2019, it was called one of the most provocative works to show up on Broadway at the time. Is it true that it was based on a conversation that you had with a straight guy at a party? It wasn't really based on it. It was more like, it's sort of like, um, you don't know where the lightning will strike when you're a writer. You know what I mean? And you're always waiting for lightning to strike somewhere. Um, We're in like a situation um, is, is sort of presented that gives you a great dramatic question and one that you don't have the answer to and that you haven't met before. And therein lies the play you need to write, right? That's, for me, what I look for when I'm thinking about story. And um, someone basically told a story about an intimate moment with a partner, an intimate moment that involved, uh, you know, sort of the eroticizing of both, like, a trauma and a fear of mm-hmm. a, of a partner. And they talked about it jovially, and they talked about it in mixed company. And I asked them if they would be as jovial or as chill talking about that if that if those questions also involved race, right? If race was a part of that discourse. And immediately they clammed up. And, and the reason I had asked is because I did think it was like a violation to ask this, to sort of share with the group <laughs> um, so something so intimate and so complex, you know, um, so candidly. Slave Play follows three interracial couples, present day and three acts, And over the course of six days on a plantation, they undergo something called antebellum sexual performance therapy. And they are there because black partners no longer feel sexual attraction to their white partners. What you are asking the audience to do is ask themselves something basic but very profound, a series of questions. Can black people in intimate partnerships with white people feel safe to say how they need to be seen? Um, And would their white partners be able and willing to comply? Or does the legacy of slavery forever alter the power dynamics in these sexual relationships between black and white people? I am really curious, Jeremy. It's been several years now. You're deep in other projects. But how have your answers to these questions maybe evolved since you originally wrote Slave Play? It is very interesting to me that we still... Um, are meeting the play through the entry point that I laid out for everyone, right? Like I laid out an entry point wherein the provocation was that we're asking these questions about the entanglement of Black Americans, white Americans, and brown Americans through the lens of sex and sexuality. But sex and sexuality was just a metaphor for every interaction. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, we are still seeing that there is a great discomfort in this country with asking ourselves in public, in mixed company, what the responsibilities white Americans have to their entangled history with slavery, right? We've never, we've never asked um, ourselves how black people have to deal with that history. We just expect that they'll figure it out themselves. But the minute that white Americans are asked to make sense of that history is the minute that there are mass book bans across the nation Yeah. I mean, so really what you're saying, because you do write about sex a lot, but you believe that it reveals so much more about 
that just our private, our desires. You believe it gives us a deeper lens into who we are. So those same questions, like can black people be in intimate partnerships with white people and feel safe to say what they need and how they need to be seen, you can just take away the word intimate and say black people in relations with white people. Can they yeah, feel I safe mean, enough to express? And also, I mean, you work at you work in radio, right? Like you have intimate relationships with your boss. You go to them and tell them, this is the thing I most want in my life. Like, listen to me, like affirm this. Right. And most of your maybe your bosses are black, but generally in a place like NPR, they would be white bosses and they have to be, like examine your vulnerability, hold your vulnerability in the way that a lover might or a partner might and say, like, I affirm this idea or I don't, you know, or whatever it is, you know, like you have to be seen. You you have to be heard by your partners in a lot of different places. And I think it's it would be easier to write off some of the questions in slave play if I just made a workplace comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's harder to write those things off when you see it look like your bedroom. Because also, we spend so much time thinking about the bedroom. One of the things I find fascinating, though, for anyone who saw slave play in a theater especially during the early runs of Slave Play, and you were often in the audience for this, is to watch people's reactions. And the laughter would come in waves. So I'm, I'm bringing up this question to come back to this idea of being seen by each other, white people seeing black people and vice versa. But the, the laughter comes in waves, waves. There were punchlines that white people in the audience thought were funny, and then punchlines that black people thought were funny. And they would rarely laugh at the same things. What did that tell you, if anything, about the differences in how black and white people actually see things and see these issues that you're bringing up and talking about? I think that's when that's one of the hardest questions to answer for me because I, I saw it so many more times than everyone else did, right? I think that there are people who are maybe in an audience one night and were like, all the white people laughed at this part and all the black people laughed at this part. If we were to do some mathematical equation, I don't know that the percentages would line up night to night on all those things where it would be like mm. 100% white and 100% black for all those things. Mm-hmm. You know, I also saw it on every blackout night. And no one, I like one of the and things. And blackout that, night were with all black audiences. Yes. Yes. We did yes. a night for only black people. And um, one of the things that became quite interesting to me and quite affirming for me is that, you know, one of the great critiques of the play was that by some black audience members who um, had seen the play or maybe hadn't seen the play is that I had obviously written it for white people. And I was, I would laugh to myself because I was like, no, I obviously wrote it for me because I'm a weird freak. Like I'm a weird Southern black uh, satirist, you know, and I want to laugh in the way I want to laugh. You know, I grew up with a certain type of comedy around me. Um, I grew up with a certain type of humor around my my own trauma. Um, and so I wanted to make a play for me. And when I was in a room with all black people watching the play, they all laughed at all the parts I wanted to laugh at, right? They all like sort of cringed at all the parts I wanted to cringe at. And what was interesting about what happens when black people and white people are together is that that the minute that people can see each other um, navigating this is the minute that the play actually became about daring the other to um, to tell you what you already know about them. Right. So you would see people looking in the mirror at their neighbor or looking and like, you know, like people like sort of like looking at 
black audience members and daring Assessing them to, each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that became the push and pull of the play for me. And that was one of the reasons why I asked that the play be either in the round or have a mirror um, when we were doing our set design. Because when I was at oh, Yale— Oh, what do you mean? Right, because people got to see their reflection. Yeah. Yeah, because at Yale, at the Yale School of Drama, when we did the play there, um, it, by just the nature of the project, it was our second-year project, so you can't change the stage setup. We were in a three-quarter thrust— and we learned very quickly. And three-quarter thrust means that there's an audience on either side of the stage and an audience in the middle. So you can see everyone. It's like a, a square. And uh, by the nature of the way the lighting worked, the limits of the budget, I saw that the play really popped off when, like, the majority black and brown students in my year, because I came to Yale the year that more black and brown students than had ever been at Yale came to Yale. Right. And, and you wrote um, Slave Play at Yale. Yes. Yes. And um and the white New Haven audience that were sort of like fangirls of like all the theater we did there, and they were also a very different age group than us. They were like thirty to forty years older than us. They were all watching each other watch the play, and I was like, "Oh, this is where it comes alive." You know what I mean? Like seeing someone get mad that someone laughed at something they didn't get is where the play comes alive. Blackout nights. They were private events that you had all over, um, where black audiences could witness and see your work. And they were um, invitation only. Why was the holding space for Black audience members important to you? Well, I have a very good friend who's a musician named Kalela. And she saw the play on Off-Broadway twice or three times. And she came to me after. Slave play, yeah, Off-Broadway. And she came to me and she said to me, Jeremy, I love the play, but that was mainly because I saw it with my group of friends. But whenever I looked up at the mirror and saw all the white people in the audience, I just thought, wouldn't it be so much cooler if I could just see black people just for one night so I wouldn't be pulled out of it by these by these other audience members? And I was like, well, you know what? I've never been to a play that only had black people in it um, or a play in a house this big that's only had black people in it. So I was like, if we go to Broadway, I'm going to do that. I'm going to just have a blackout night. I'm going to have a night where we just have black people in the audience. Because I thought about the fact that, you know, in the 1960s, uh, 1950s, for most of my grandmother's life, she wasn't allowed to go to theaters with white people. And no one's ever apologized to her for that. They just sort of one day were like, oh, I guess you can go. And I was like, without a radical invitation to bring us back to the theater, there's not going to ever be a change. Um and also, I'm tired of going to plays. I, every play I go to, I'm the only black person in the audience most of the time, or at least the only black person in the orchestra. So I was like, maybe that'll start to change if I give someone a way to change it, right? Um, if I remind black people that these these halls, this architecture can belong to us as well. Um, and so we did it. And it was amazing. It was really, really amazing. Twelve Tony nominations is historic. I mean, it's something to be forever proud of. But were you disappointed at all that you all didn't win? I'm gay. So award shows are my um, Olympics. Like, I am (laughs) the prognosticator. I have a really, really high rate of, um, really high success rate in, like, Oscars, Tony tallying. Like, it's, like, so messed up um, because it's so much fun for me. And so I truly 
came into the Tonys thinking that like we would we would definitely not win best play. Um I thought that there was a chance we would win uh best actress and best set. And the minute we didn't win best set, I turned to my mom and I was like we're not winning anything. And it's actually kind of cool to be able to say that like no matter what, I doubt anyone will ever lose 12 Tonys for best play. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I don't think one play will ever lose 12 Tony nominations. So it feels kind of punk in the same way that, like, Beyonce losing to Harry Styles is punk, you know? Yeah. Our guest today is actor, producer, and playwright Jeremy O'Harris. He's written several plays, including Daddy and Slave Play. We'll hear more of our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Pay. Everyone knows that credit card numbers can be stolen. But you know what's harder to steal? Your face. With Apple Pay, your purchases are authenticated by you thanks to Face ID, making your smile your signature. Just double-click, smile, and tap. With each tap, your card number and your purchases stay secured. Pay the Apple way with your compatible device anywhere contactless payment is accepted. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado, back to remind you about the bonus episodes you can get by being a Fresh Air Plus supporter. It's the end of June, which means it's the end of both Black Music Month and Pride Month. At the beginning of June, Janelle Monet released The Age of Pleasure. And in celebration of all these things, we recently listened back to a few of Monet's appearances on Fresh Air. I'm actually cringing at the thought of you playing this song because some of the lyrics I just don't believe in anymore. Like, I think there's something in the second verse. It's danger. There's danger when you take off your clothes. All your dreams go down yeah. the drain, girl. Is that the line you're Ugh. thinking of? Yeah, I, I hate that line. You can hear Terry Gross and Janelle Monet in conversation on our Fresh Air Plus bonus episode, available as a thank you for our Fresh Air Plus supporters. If that's not you yet, what are you waiting for? Check out plus.npr.org for more information. Let's get back to my interview with Jeremy O'Harris. He's a playwright, actor, and producer, and served as a producer on the latest revival of Lorraine Hansberry's play, The Sign and Sidney Brewstein's Window, and helped bring it to Broadway, where it's now running. Harris also co-wrote the 2021 film Zola and served as a co-producer for season two of the HBO show Euphoria. And he plays a fashion designer on season two of the Netflix series Emily in Paris. Harris's several plays include Slave Play, which garnered 12 Tony Award nominations, making it the most Tony-nominated non-musical play in history. His earlier play, Daddy, had a limited off-Broadway run in 2019. Okay, let's talk about Daddy. It was one of your first melodramas that you actually wrote before Slave Play, and it's about a young Black artist who gets into a twisted relationship with a wealthy older collector— and this idea came to you when you were in your early 20s after a real encounter with a wealthy white man. Is this right? Who invited you on a trip to Sandro Pay? 
but you declined the offer and later had an epiphany about why. Can you share the PG version of this story? So, so the man that invited me actually wasn't white. Um, he was actually a person of color, um, and he was, but he was a billionaire. I knew a lot of boys who were being wooed or were dating multimillionaires or billionaires when I first moved to LA. And I, I remember I'd go to their parties and I'd be like, so like wowed that these boys were in these houses that were like multi-million dollar houses with like people who literally like ran our country, you know, both culturally and socially and politically. And I was like, what do you have to do to be one of these boys? And like the main criteria seemed to be be like white and have abs, you know, and um, be like supermodel like and you were intellectual. I was the intellectual. And so I would go to these parties and be the only one, like, not in a Speedo, just, like, talking to their daddies, right? Like, these, like, older men. And, like, finding out, like, I'd be like, so, like, you know, like, so when you won your first Oscar, like, how did that happen? You know, like, I was, like, asking all the, like, weird questions or, like, going through their art collection and being like, wait, is that, like, uh, is that a Louise Bourgeois? Like, I was, like, so not the vibe. Like, I was not. The, but they they liked me. They tolerated me. They saw me as like um like a a, a cute assistant, you know, but not like a love interest. Um, until one guy saw me and really wanted to see me in a lot of different ways. And um, after trying to woo me all night, invited me on this trip. And without even hesitating, after months and months and months of a match of wondering what I would say if I ever had this opportunity and hoping that, like, I would get swept off my feet by someone like this. Um, The minute I was met with the opportunity by a very attractive, very charming man, I was immediately like, no, (laughs) no, thank you. (laughs) And he was like, what? I was like, yeah, no, thank you. I don't want to do that. Um, Because my brain immediately went to, like, A, what would my mom say? Um, Not because I'm I'm queer, but because, like, he was older than her. (laughs) You know what I mean? I was like, this is weird. Mm -hmm. And B, um, because I think in the back of my mind, I was like, I don't want a daddy i am my own daddy you know um and i think that's because for so long of my childhood when growing up as a in a single parent home i had had to be the man of the house for so long and i think that like um it was like fun to dream about or imagine that some man would sweep me me and my mom off our feet and like save the day but i think i had done the job of doing that in my own way for so long that I was like, no, it's too late. I have to be the one that does it. I mean, this is really powerful because this thought that came to you, like, wait a minute, I don't want a savior. I want to be my own savior. I want to be my own daddy. It helped you confront something about your own relationship with the role of father. You never actually knew your biological father. Nope. I only met him once when I was eight. And he did the the worst thing you can do to a child when they're eight, which is tell them you'll come back and see them again and then never do it. Mm, do you remember the meeting? Where I were do. You? I, yeah. It was in Virginia. My mom had gotten this really nice big house on Stony Mountain. It was very nice for us. And um, he came to visit us. My mom had sort of worked it out because I've been asking about him a lot. And so then he came to visit. He came with his wife. And uh, they were on leave from the military, and he gave me a present, and we like hung out, and we took pictures, and then he told me that he would come back for me, um, and like the next day, and take me on a trip with him to where he was stationed at the time, and he literally just never showed back up. He's never called, he's never texted, he's never written. Your mom had you when she was pretty young. She was nineteen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And she was a single mom, as you mentioned. Um, Was she primarily a beautician growing up? No, she worked all sorts of jobs. She worked at... um, uh, uh, she worked at like a. There were a lot of factories in my town, so she worked at a couple factories. Then she worked at like she worked at like a tire factory. She worked at a like a factory that like did like uh, textiles. Um, she worked at a furniture factory, um, and then she worked as a hairstylist, and that mm-hmm. was her primary job from middle school on. But you know, in order to become a hairstylist, you have to go to school for that, and that costs money and time. And you know, when you're a single mom, you don't have the time or the luxury to do that. You know. Did she work in a salon when she was a She did. And then she owned her own salon, too. Did you ever visit? Did you spend time I worked, there? I worked at the salon, and I, I oh, will always say do? this. Oh, my God. So I swept up hair. I took, um, I took um, orders and calls and worked the front desk. I basically was annoying. Um, but the thing that I'm really upset with is that she wanted to teach me how to do hair. And I was so afraid of being perceived as gay for doing hair that I didn't learn. And I still to this day am frustrated because I don't think I would have been as like financially dire through my 20s had I just known how to like braid hair. Did she want to teach you when you were a teenager? And were you out then? Were you not out then? I didn't come out until my first year of college. Um, mm-hmm. Until after the end of my first year of college. And, it, and and I think it had more to do with just the fact that like there wasn't enough representation of what queerness actually was. Like all we had was like Will and Grace. And in Will and Grace, like if they kissed a girl, they'd be like, ew, gross, yuck. And I was like, I like kissing girls sometimes, you know? So I was like, maybe I'm not gay. And it wasn't until I went to college, I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> you are. Um, you definitely are. Um, but again, that's because we had such a like, um, binary understanding of what queerness was and also any sort of exploration because I, I think I would have explored many, many times, but all that sense of exploration was like completely um, stamped out. There was no like pathway to exploration because to explore was to confirm, right? Mm. And to confirm was death. And mm. I think that's what's really dark about this moment was that right when people like my niece, who's 12, right? My niece was like 12 and told us all that like like, they wanted to have she, they pronouns and, uh, like, you know, didn't want to identify as straight. Like, that 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 sort of exploration or, or um, expression at that age um, would have been so detrimental to my, like, my bodily health, my social health. And it wasn't an option. Yeah. It wasn't an option. And now, right when it's slowly becoming an option in a place like Danville, Virginia— People are people are getting freaked out and feel threatened by it and are trying to put our kids back in the closet and make everyone afraid again of exploring, of expressing. Is it true that you'd also help your mother dress? Would you pick out her outfits or help her oh, choose always. What to wear? I still do that. I still do that to this day. Yeah. You'd also sometimes put on her clothing and play around in front of the mirror. I'm just curious what what did her clothing represent for you? I think the same thing that all clothing represented, just like a chance to tell a new story about myself. You know what I mean? And I loved making characters. Like, it was, like, truly a character thing for me um, and a play thing for me, um, which is one of the reasons why I I feel so protective of, like, 
everyone's right and 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 everyone should feel the right and the thrill of dressing because dressing like the minute uh, today i'm wearing i'm wearing uh, it's hot in new york and i'm wearing a full suit and a turtleneck because that's the story i wanted to tell about myself today that i'm the type of person who walks around in new york and doesn't feel the heat (laughs) yes okay what color is it um, it is a striped Versace suit. It's um, it's like a wine and a navy blue with a white stripe. And then the turtleneck is like a sort of see-through, sheer um, black Margiela. Two weeks before uh, Slave Play made its debut on Broadway, your your grandfather, Golden Harris, passed away. I mean, what what a name. Was Golden his birth name? Golden was his birth name. What role did he play in your life? How did how did he shape your understanding of of yourself? Well, uh, we called him. I called him Papa. Um, he was very very special, um, and he, you know, he was a he was a one patriarch in our family, in a family of very very strong matriarchs. Um, he was a complicated man. He was a man of a lot of humor, a man of a lot of light, but a man that gave up everything in a lot of ways to make sure that, like, um, both his children and myself, or his, all of his children and myself had, like, as many opportunities as we could. Um, he gave me so many great memories. Like, I'll never forget, like, you know, him having no, no, no money, but always finding, like, $2 and change to, like, take me to the rock store to get a hot dog and... um uh, get to get a hot dog and uh, chips, uh, a hot dog with mustard, ketchup, and chili and chips um, right after school every day. Um, when like they definitely didn't have the money for that. Um, yeah, he was just a very special light in my life, and I'm very sad he didn't get to see me go to Broadway. But I know he was part of the reason I was there because I opened my play at the Golden Theater on Broadway, which is a wild, wild. It's too wild a coincidence to not be um, something. Our guest today is actor, producer, and playwright Jeremy O'Harris. He's written several plays, including Slave Play, which was nominated in 2021 for 12 Tony Awards. We'll hear more of our conversation after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shark Week, the podcast from Discovery Channel. A lot of what people think is shark fact is actually shark fiction. Learn the truth behind some of the weirdest shark myths. Listen to Shark Week, the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Going back to your freedom of expression through clothing, and I love you're wearing a suit with the turtleneck to really convey that message that you can take the heat. I mean, the clothes (laughs) you wear, your afros and braids and beads and colorful clothing— your photos with stars like Madonna and Rihanna. 
you very much evoke the persona of a movie or pop star, which isn't what we think of when we think of a playwright. And for you, that's intentional to attract audiences. Can you say more about this? It's intentional to attract the audiences that you want to come to the theater. Can you explain that? Um, I want to catch people on a web, right? So if, if, if the web of influence I have in the theater are just kids that go to uh, NYU performance studies uh, or NYU um, the Tisch School of Theater, right? That's a very small web. It's not a very large web. If it, and if it's just people who do theater, it's not a very large web. It doesn't catch my mom. It doesn't catch my sister. It doesn't catch my cousins. But if I'm with Rihanna, Rihanna's web adds to my web and it gets a little bigger. So then I catch a couple people from her web, right? And if I am with Madonna or if I'm with, you know, uh, a painter like Salman Tour, or if I'm with... Um, a, 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 you know, a, a, a K-pop star like Eric Nam or um, a actress like Kate Blanchett. Like, the web gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And for a small, small little community like theater, um, the bigger your web is, the better it is, you know? Um, and that being said, I, I always struggle with this idea that it's, like, new for a writer to be um, popular. Like, you know, bon vivants are necessary, a necessary part of our culture. Public intellectuals are, like, a necessary part of our culture. You know, like, James Baldwin used to walk around with Marlon Brando in Harlem nightclubs, you know? Uh, Sam Shepard was dating Jessica Lange. Um, it's, not, it's not new, in my opinion— for a playwright to be like seen with artists of note or Hollywood stars, um, especially if he's or she is like, you know, curious about the world, f- funny, intelligent, and makes art that those people might also want to be a part of. Um, it feels like a necessary extension of what they do. Folks may not know, you actually started out in this business wanting to be an actor. You were an actor in Chicago for a brief moment. Um, But when I first saw your cameo on HBO Max's Gossip Girl and then the Netflix show Emily in Paris, I thought you might be branching out. That is not the case. You actually came into playwriting after becoming an actor and really figuring out that it wasn't for you. Well, I mean, yeah, the job of acting isn't for me. (laughs) I hate the job of being an actor. And that doesn't mean the job of acting on a set. I mean, the job of, like, waking up, rehearsing multiple sides, sending in those self-tapes, getting rejected, being told by your agent um, that, like, the reason they said no was because you're too tall or you're not skinny enough or you're too skinny. Um, Being asked to wait and wait and wait and do all of that for free. That felt crazy to me. And like I told my friend Iowa Debery, um, who's on The Bear, I feel like um, I cheated and took the back door to becoming a famous actor, potentially. Uh, you know, I'm in this movie called The Sweet East that premiered at Cannes, and I was just like, is that what every failed actor should do? Um, is just write a hit play? Um, and I think the answer is yes, absolutely. Right. Write a hit play, then you will be on a Netflix series. You will be on an HBO series. You will be asked to be in multiple movies you'll have to say no to because you'll be so busy writing that you can't say yes to all your movie roles. Why do you love working in theater so much? And why has it become your main form of expression? 
I think it's linked to the idea that I wanted to be a preacher at one point. You know, like um, it's a community-based practice. And that's what, you know, it's a community-based practice minus the religion. You know, you get to see the faces of the people you're impacting with your work. Um, You get to talk with them. You get to see how how the conversation in your work move through them every night. And I think that that's vital to a vital democracy is to have um, watering holes where people actually are being forced to think, debate, and talk together in a room, not online, where you can actually see their affect, where you can make sense of their word, where you can meaning make together, not in a silo. That's why I make theater. But you also feel it's just as important to step into these other realms of art and making. Why is that? You could focus solely on one thing, but you've decided to take these other avenues of expression as well. <laughs> I'm a Gemini. I don't know. I like <laughs> when, like, I mean, it's mainly theater, theater, and also I'm like, it's like I'm poly with art. It's like, it's like, yes, my main, my anchor is theater, but that might mean that because I love theater so much, I'll f- walk down a hallway into a bedroom with music and write seven songs, one of which might end up in a play, two of which might end up on a friend's album, you know? Um, But each of the things I do comes back and inspires the theater even more. And I think that if I was um, completely monogamous with theater, I'd get bored with it. Um, So me and theater have an arrangement. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy O'Harris, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. That was playwright Jeremy O'Harris. He most recently helped get the revival of Lorraine Hansberry's play, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, to Broadway. Coming up, a review from Maureen Corrigan on two new summer reads by Richard Ford and Lori Moore. This is Fresh Air. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from Schwab. With Schwab Investing Themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, electric vehicles, and more. Schwab's research uncovers emerging trends, then their technology curates relevant stocks into over 40 themes to choose from. Schwab Investing Themes is not intended to be investment advice or a recommendation of any stock or investment strategy. Visit schwab.com slash thematic investing. Support for NPR and the following message come from NPR sponsor Allianz Travel Insurance. From quick weekend getaways to international vacations, an annual travel plan from Allianz Travel Insurance can protect your adventures for the next 365 days. And with benefits starting as close as 100 miles from home, you can have peace of mind wherever you go. Get a quote at AllianzTravelInsurance.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dell Technologies. Now your ideas don't have to wait. Dell Technologies and Intel are pushing what technology can do, so great ideas can happen right now. Bring your ideas to life at Dell.com. Welcome to now. It used to be that in the publishing world, literary fiction would take the summer off, and so-called beach reads would swarm onto the new list of releases, like day trippers to Coney Island in those old black-and-white photos. But this summer signals a serious break with that tradition, starting with two new novels by Richard Ford and Lori Moore. Here's our book critic, Maureen Corrigan's review. 
Lots of summer books traditionally invite readers on a road trip. But when literary masters like Richard Ford and Laurie Moore are in the driver's seats, the only thing we readers can count on is that we'll travel far beyond the range of GPS. Richard Ford wrote his first novel about Frank Bascom, a wannabe novelist turned sports writer and real estate salesman, in 1986. Over the decades, two more novels and one short story collection followed Frank through two marriages, the loss of a child, middle age, and semi-retirement. Now Ford is bringing the Bascom saga to an end in Be Mine, a novel that finds Frank, at 74, stepping up to be the caregiver for his 40-something-year-old son, Paul, who's been diagnosed with ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. This is a winter's tale in more ways than one. It's a frigid February in Rochester, Minnesota, and for two months, Frank and Paul have been living a suspended existence in a rented house close to the Mayo Clinic, where Paul has been part of a trial study. Now that trial is wrapping up, and Frank, in a ham-fisted grab for diversion and connection with his prickly son, rents a clunker of an RV to set out for Mount Rushmore. Paul, Frank tells us, has a taste for the heartfelt combined with the preposterous. A trip to Rushmore to survey the four presidents' visages hammered into a mountain like Stone Age marionettes should fit the bill. Throughout his Bascom books, Ford has always set the particulars of what's going on in Frank's life against a larger American story. This one takes place in the winter of 2020, when a presidential election fractures the land and a pandemic waits in the wings. Given Paul's health condition and Frank's age, mortality is the central preoccupation in Be Mine. But Ford never trumpets his pronouncements about life, death, the all of it. Rather, they edge in sideways, as in this quick conversational moment between Frank, our first-person narrator, and Paul as they pull into a hotel parking lot. Do you think I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing this? Paul asks. I wait to speak. Isn't this trip any fun? No, it's good, says Paul. Yeah, no, I think. The entire human condition in two words. If Be Mine is indeed the last Bascom novel, it's an elegiac and wry finale to a great saga. But, yeah, no, I hope that maybe this isn't quite the end. As a writer, Lori Moore is an all-American genius eccentric. When I reviewed her 2014 short story collection, Bark, I likened her in her loopy, macabre vision to Emily Dickinson. Moore's new novel called I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home only intensifies that comparison. In brief, the novel tells two stories. The slighter opening one is set during the Civil War. 
Through letters and a journal, we meet a woman named Elizabeth, who keeps a boarding house where she fends off a sly gentleman lodger, an itinerant actor who, she says, is keen to relieve me of my spinsterhood. The main story concerns a teacher from Illinois who's come to New York to sit at the bedside of his dying brother. While at the hospice, Finn learns that Lily, his depressed former girlfriend with whom he's still hopelessly in love, has committed suicide. Distraught, he travels to her grave, only to be greeted by Lily herself, in the flesh, albeit rapidly decaying flesh that causes her to smell like warm food, cooling. Because Lily says she wants her body to be moved to the forensic body farm in Knoxville, Tennessee, Finn helps her into his car and off they go. Are you with me so far? More short stories and novels are so much their own self-enclosed worlds that it's almost beside the point to say what they're about. But in its fragmentary Civil War plot and off-kilter vision of the afterlife, I Am Homeless, If This Is Not My Home, is a bit reminiscent of George Saunders' 2017 novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. Most vividly, though, Moore's story invokes and comically literalizes the universal desire to have more time with a loved one who's died. You might be reluctant to go along on such a morbid and very dusty ride, but you'd be missing one of the most singular and affecting on-the-road stories in the American canon. That was Maureen Corrigan's review of Richard Ford's new book, Be Mine and Lori Moore's I Am Homeless If This Is Not My Home. To keep up with what's on our show and to get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallet, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krinzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Nyakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. 
Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.